we are now reaping what we have sown. We're losing our children. Go to any church in this country that say, yep, all our young people are leaving. I can tell you why they're leaving. They're leaving because you as the pastor didn't warn the parents that the schools were indoctrinating the children, uh, not just to not believe in God, but actually to, to hate or even to mock or to ridicule. Hey everybody, welcome back to Fearless with Mark and Amber, the intersection of faith, family, and filmmaking. I'm your co-host, Amber Archer, and with me is my husband, Mark Archer. Hello, hello, hello. So if you're just joining us, welcome. We are a husband and wife filmmaking team and founders of the filmmaking ministry, Fearless Features. We're on a mission to share hope in Christ around the world through feature films, documentaries, podcasts, books, and more. Our goal is to educate, motivate, and inspire others to get involved in their local communities to defend biblical principles and values. So welcome to the show. So we are picking up with Alex. There was a lot that happened over this past week. So if you missed the last two episodes, you're going to want to go back and listen to those um, if you want to catch up to what's going on. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, go back three episodes to part one with Alex Newman. So much happening here. <laughs> so much. There's a lot going on. Very I mean, much excitement. I, I'm very excited. So anyway, so we're going to pick back up with Alex Newman, who's going to talk to us more about education and the, and the mysterious... John Dewey. John Dewey, the deliberate dumbing down of America. So, again, if you are just joining us, we went actually to Florida to interview Alex Newman, who is who is a contributing author to Crimes of the Educators, the book. And I'll leave a link to that in the show notes. And you don't want to miss that book. I mean, you really got to read it because it's unbelievable. Story out of Oregon. This was just Two days ago, Oregon promotes teacher training program to, quote, dismantle racism in mathematics. Okay. Okay, so just the headline (laughs) alone was enough to just. (sighs) Two plus two is four. That's a racist answer. Why is two plus two always four to you? And <laughs> is it because of there's there's absolutes in mathematics? Is that I hate that I am not, racism? I don't want to let I don't want to laugh, but that's literally what they're saying. That is the most insanely stupid thing. It, well, I can tell you this: I can I can safely predict that there won't be any rocket scientists coming out of this particular school district in Oregon. I it makes if, me so sad. If you <laughs> can't like, even teach math. <laughs> Okay, so okay. let me just, I'll just, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but just, I'll, and I'll leave the link to it in the show notes. You guys can go and read it for yourself. So Oregon's education department is promoting a training program that will offer a toolkit to help teachers, quote, develop an anti-racist math practice. As noted in a newsletter sent by the department, middle school, t- middle school. We're t- we are talking about middle school mm-hmm. are encouraged to register for a February 21st course titled a pathway to equitable math instruction, which <laughs> <laughs> stop, which they say is designed to help make no, 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 to help them make use of key tools for engagement and strategies to improve equitable outcomes for black, Latinx and multilingual lingual students okay so i don't know what that means but i'm gonna read on hang on according to the toolkit one of those ways to achieve this goal is by quote visibilizing visibilizing why do why do i keep stumbling over that word v-i-s-i-b-l-i-z-i-n-g visibilizing i don't know 
I don't think I've ever heard that word. It's a new word. I'm gonna Maybe if you weren't such a racist, you could read it. <laughs> I'm going to have to go look it up. <laughs> okay, so visibilizing the toxic... I should look that up. The toxic characteristic, characteristics of white supremacy culture. Maybe that's why I can't read it. That's probably That's it. probably why. Because I don't get... I'm not down with the sickness. <laughs> <laughs> Was that wait? Who was that? Okay, let's not do the uh, bunny trail. Okay, let's not disturbed. Disturbed. Thank you. Um. Anyway, <laughs> stop it. You guys ignore us sometimes. Um. So anyway, the to- the toxic characteristics of white supremacy culture with respect to math, the alleged quote toxic characteristics. Oh my gosh. Include, among many others, focusing on getting the right answer. I knew it. Students being students being required to show their work and teachers, quote, treating mistakes as problems by equating them with wrongness. (laughs) Equating them with wrongness. Yeah, I'm sorry. Let's point out the obvious. It's It's wrong. Can we please teach kids? Well, this is what this is the insane ultimate result that you get to when you have a relativistic worldview and a culture that embraces relativism. It's more than just boys can be girls and girls can be boys. Now it's math, which has absolutes. Uh There are absolutes in math. That's the point of math. That's how the Lord created math. And now we're arguing about that you can't have absolutes in math. This is we have completely gone off the bonkers rails here. And liberalism is not that hard to understand. When you're a hammer, the whole world is a nail. Right? <laughs> right. It, all that they all that they see is everything is racist. So is it any surprise that math is racist? I I I'm I literally I'm baffled. I'm it's so I'm trying not to laugh, but how absurd. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't even know. The people who sit around and come up with this stuff really got to be trying hard. Oh, they're like, they're, you, yeah, they, you have to really be trying hard yeah, to they, come up well, with something. They, this is academia. They sit around well, and they think up this nonsense. Well, and, it, and it's interesting. Um, we're talking about absolutes and truths. And, uh, and I just read an article about the LGBTQ community who recently shut down research into the, the gender dysphoria and so they told everybody in this community, stop, stop listening and don't go to this research because they want to find a, quote, cure. And they're treating us like this is something that can be cured and we can't be cured. Because now, sci- of course, science, <laughs> they're trying to do brain scans mm-hmm. on people and it's not working out in their favor. And why shut it down? Because people have made careers out of pushing this nonsensical agenda. Isn't it amazing how those who push the relativistic worldview that there are no absolutes and that's how you get to open acceptance of transsexuals and lesbians and homo, all of this nonsense. Mm-hmm. That's how you get to it because everything is fluid, right? right. Except when they decide that we're going to shut something down. Now there's absolutes. The right. absolutes are the ones that they say. Absolutely, there is no debate. Well, what happened to fluidity? Right. <laughs> what happened to everything is relative. Right? So it's just nonsense. So let's pick up where we left off with our conversation with Alex Newman. So this architecture was then in place, this architecture of um, government schools. right? And 
Then along came a guy called John Dewey. And, and if you ask anybody who has an education degree in America, they'll tell you, oh, John Dewey, yeah, he's the founding father of America's public school system. I think in fairness, really some of the blame ought to be assigned to Horace Mann and before him, Robert Owen. But Dewey was an incredibly important man when it comes to the government school system in America. But he actually picked up the architecture that was already there and further radicalized it. Uh, so what... Dewey had these weird ideas, just like the guys before him. Uh, he rejected God, uh, and we'll, we can talk about his religion in a moment. Um, and and he really rejected private property. He rejected individual freedom. Uh, he really was a collectivist in the truest sense of the term. He was such a collectivist that he went to the Soviet Union and was just in love with what they were doing. He, he wrote this whole series of articles uh, for an American magazine talking about how wonderful the Soviet system was, and especially the education system. They were instilling what he described as a collectivistic mentality in the children. And he was thrilled. He, he loved these ideas. Um, he didn't mention that they were exterminating millions of people. I don't know whether that was because you know, he was ignorant of that or he was deliberately concealing it. Dewey, you know, he loves the Soviet system. He wants to implement it in America. He actually had a model for what he wanted America to look like. He had uh, a book that he had read, uh, published in 1888 by a guy called Edward Bellamy. And it was this fiction novel about a communist America in the year 2000, no more private property. And he thought, hey, that would be perfect. That's really what Ameri what the goal of our movement should be, is to gradually shift us over to this collectivistic society. Uh, and, you know, he frames it in glowing terms, like communists always do. Oh, everyone's going to cooperate, and there's going to be harmony, and it's not going to be this dog-eat-dog uh, -dog system, this ruthless free market, this individualism where every man for himself. So, you know, they, they paint it in these wonderful terms, but really they're denying uh, at its core, the divine order. It, it, it was God who said, thou shalt not steal. It was God who said, if you don't work, you don't eat, right? With the exception of elderly and people who, who can't support themselves and children. Um, so he, he, he had all these ideas about where he wanted society to move. Uh, and he recognized that Obama uh, some years ago called us bitter clingers, right? The older people are bitter clingers. They cling to their guns. They cling to their Bibles. They cling to their old ways. Uh, and so like many, many other utopians who wanted to reform society, they recognized that their route to being able to accomplish that runs through the minds of young people. And so John Dewey, he did a lot of different things. He was a philosopher and all kinds of things. But his, his real passion was education. And he wrote incredibly extensively on education. And the key to understanding his writings, and I've got a whole bunch of his books at home, uh, the key to understanding his writings is every time he uses the word democracy, just replace it with socialism. And then everything becomes perfectly clear, his entire agenda. So he talks about educating for a democratic society and, and having a democracy. Of course, our founding fathers were not big fans of uh, the system democracy. Actually, James Madison, the father of our constitution, said it was a horrible form of government and uh, nobody's rights are gonna be safe. But John Dewey believed that uh, if you could shape people into being collectivists during their early years in education, and then from there, um, and, and so Dewey wrote really extensively on his view of education, his view of where society should go, and also religion, and we'll talk about religion. But um, one of the essays that he wrote that I think is just so important to understand, it was so important that we reprinted it in Crimes of the Educators in the appendix. It's called uh, The Primary Education Fetish. And, and he came to the conclusion that we really don't need to spend so much time teaching little children how to read and how to write and how to do math. Uh, really, the, the focus during those years that he believed should be to socialize them properly so that they would put the interests of the collective over their individual self-interest. And uh, I, I view that as a really damning 
uh, essay, in fact. Uh, it's, it's very little known for obvious reasons, but as you read it, you, you realize he uses the language of a conspirator. Um, one of the quotes that, that we use repeatedly in the book, because it's so damning, is that um, change must come gradually. To force it unduly would compromise its final success by favoring a violent reaction. Uh, so he recognized over 100 years ago that if we let parents figure out what we're doing, if we let the teachers figure out, the taxpayers who are paying for all this, if they find out what we're doing, there's going to be a violent reaction. <laughs> so we got to do it quietly. We got to make sure nobody's paying attention. And we got to do it over a long period of time. Because if we just rush right into it and tell all the kids there is no God and um, you know start dumbing them down in the, in, in the extreme, parents will revolt and we might even be tarred and feathered. So we got to do it quietly. So it's a very damning essay, I think, about where John Dewey's views were. Uh, eventually, he, he got a, a job at the University of Chicago, got a huge grant at, at the time, three-point-something three million dollars from one of the Rockefeller Philanthropies, the General Education Board. And he set up this experimental school at the University of Chicago and he got a whole bunch of victims, uh, including, ironically, some of the Rockefeller boys. And... So they start with this experimental method or methodology of teaching. And it was pretty obvious what was going on. The children couldn't learn how to read properly. They couldn't tell right from wrong. And so a normal person who was interested in the well-being of the individuals and of society at large would say, oh my goodness, this experiment has gone horribly wrong. Here we've got a whole bunch of children who can't read. They can't tell right from wrong. Uh, this needs to be stopped right away. And we need to publish our results so no one ever does something so stupid again. Uh, John Dewey, by contrast, said, hey, this will be perfect. How do we get this uh, plugged into the entire nation? And that's what he said about. Uh, he, he said about creating these new uh, reading primers, these new tools to teach reading. Uh, he ended up getting a post at Columbia University at the Teachers College, which is probably one of the most prestigious uh, colleges of education in the country and worked with behavioral psychologists to come up with uh, different pedagogies to, to use on children, came, came up with these different readers to teach reading using the whole word method that had already been discredited under Horace Mann. And after World War II, it really was able to catch on because there was all, all the school districts had all this extra money. You know, we weren't fighting the war anymore. We didn't have to ration supplies. Suddenly there's just money flowing everywhere. So all the school districts, not all, but many of the school districts said, hey, let's buy these new uh, reading materials. They come so highly recommended from all these prestigious experts and from Teachers College. And, hey, let's do that. So they got the Macmillan Readers and the Dick and Jane series and so on. And uh, it, was, it was horrifying, right? It was, it was an atrocity. Uh, within a decade, um, the, the situation was so bad that Rudolf Flesch wrote a book exposing what was happening. It was called Why Johnny Can't Read. And if you read it, he hit the nail on the head. He understood perfectly what had happened. And that was actually what inspired Sam Blumenfeld to get involved in this fight. Was uh, This book was published, I believe, in 1955. He said the reason why the children can't read is because the way that reading is being taught in the schools flies in the face of all logic and common sense. And that was an explosive moment. It caused a national scandal. It resulted in many districts going back to the drawing board and saying, okay, well, we got to try something different. He's right. This doesn't work. Um, but when you see this consistent pattern, when you see that uh, socialists and communists and humanists and collectivists uh, have been consistently pushing these ideas, knowing full well the damaging consequences that they have, you start to realize that there's a pattern. 
this was deliberate, this wasn't accidental. Uh, you know, if, if they wanted to know what effect uh, the whole word method would have on the children, all they had to do was go back and read the essay written by all the schoolmasters in Boston uh, after it was put into the school system under Horace Mann. So I believe, and I think the evidence is clear, that John Dewey knew full well what he was doing. Um, and, I, and it's clear also that he wanted to turn children away from Christianity, you know, as, as Horace Mann did as well, and as did Robert Owen, um, because Christianity was really the backbone of America. I mean, everything about America was at its core Christian. Uh, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, all these principles were distilled from the Bible. The people who wrote them down said they came straight from the Bible and they showed you scripture, verse, where did it come from in the Bible? So these were all biblical principles. America was uh, probably one of the most Christianized societies that had ever existed on earth up until that time. And that's what led to this flourishing of individual liberty, this incredible economic prosperity, but the guys who created and, and directed the government school system were inherently hostile to those ideas. Uh, some of them rejected God outright. All of them rejected the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that came through very clearly. And I, and I think the evidence is so clear when you look at John Dewey, it's indisputable. Um, he was one of the co-writers of what's called the Humanist Manifesto. This was a very religious document. In fact, they call themselves religious humanists. So it's not just me saying they were a religion. Uh, they admitted that they were creating a religion. And as you read the text of this First Humanist Manifesto, and anybody can find it online and verify that what I'm saying is true, there was 30-something signers. Uh, John Dewey was one of the key masterminds behind it. Um, the very first tenet of their Humanist Manifesto gives away the agenda. They say that we believe uh, that the universe is self-existing. This is we religious humanists believe that the universe is self-existing and not created. So we wanted to take a quick break here to um, fill you in on a couple of things that Alex was talking about there. Number one, you heard him talking about how the founders hated the idea of a democracy. And this is one of these one of these terms that has become very distorted because of our schooling systems, okay? Uh, and people look at you cross-eyed all the time when you when you tell them we do not live in a in a democracy. The United States is not a democracy. And people look at you and go, well, yes, it is. <laughs> well, yes, we, well, we 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 got to save our democracy. Listen, we what is the pledge of allegiance? I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to, to the, the Republic. Republic for which, for which it, it stands. stands. Folks, it's in the Pledge of Allegiance. We've been saying it our whole lives. The difference between a democracy and a republic. Now, we are a representative democracy or a democratic republic. Mm -hmm. A pure democracy is mob rule. You don't want to live in a pure democracy. It never works. And that's what Alex was talking about there, that they hated the idea of a democracy. Mm -hmm. We have a democratic republic. We elect representatives to go and vote on these bills and discuss these things on our behalf. They represent us. That's why they're called representatives. But it's a, it's a very important thing. And you hear it in the media nonstop. And I think because the media, people in the media, they don't know <laughs> they the don't difference. They don't get it either. They don't know. And if you tell them, we don't know, we live in a republic. No, we don't. We live in, We have to save our democracy. We just have to save our republic, not our democracy. We don't live in a democracy. Also, the Humanist Manifesto. Oh, no. <clears throat> I did find the Humanist Manifesto here, and I do. We can link that for yeah. you. <laughs> just to confirm 
what Alex is talking about, the Humanist Manifesto, and the, and the first tenet, I'm just going to read it here, religious humanists regard the universe as self-existing and not created. So let me just mm. point out the obvious. These people who are the founders of the public education system are all humanists. They call mm -hmm. themselves religious humanists. Mm -hmm. When you look at who signed the Humanist Manifesto, it was people like John Dewey and a bunch of pastors in that from Unitarian churches mm -hmm. and Universalist churches. They see this as their religion. Uh, let me read the second one. Humanism believes that man is a part of nature and that he has emerged as a result of a continuous process. We call that evolution. Uh -huh. That is interesting. <clears throat> I did find, though, the 15th and last uh, tenet of the Humanist Manifesto. We assert that humanism will, A, affirm life rather than deny it, B, seek to elicit the possibilities of life, not flee from them, and C, endeavor to establish the conditions of a satisfactory life for all, not merely for the few. By this po positive morale and intention, humanism will be guided, and from this perspective and alignment, the techniques and efforts of humanism will flow. Boy, they sound really pro-life there. They sound very pro-life at the beginning <laughs> there. Don't we assert that humanism will affirm life rather than deny it. Uh-huh. Huh. And seek to elicit the possibilities of life, not flee from them. I find it fascinating that the humanists sound an awful lot like pro-life people. Yeah. Of course, they're not. Of course, they're not. But I uh, just wanted to point that out. So, with that being said, let's get back to the second part of Alex Newman. So, what, what does this mean for Christians? Well, I think for Christian parents, all of this should be uh, an incredibly serious warning. I, I, I mean, you're doing the equivalent of playing Russian roulette with your children, uh, but it's worse than that because as you do the Russian roulette, you've got rounds in five of the six chambers. And uh, you know, I serve on the advisory board of the Nehemiah Institute, and they've been looking at the worldview of children. They've been studying the worldview of churches and parents, public school children, Christian school children. And what they have found is that the overwhelming majority of Christian children from Christian homes with two Christian parents who spend 12 years in a government indoctrination center are going to leave the faith, they're going to leave the church. Um, John Dewey understood this early on. So did his colleagues and his cohorts, C.F. Potter, uh, one of the original humanists who was working with Dewey, actually wrote a book about this, uh, Humanism, A New Religion. And they explained that the public school was going to become uh, the arena. He, he actually mocked churches. What do you think your, your one hour of Sunday school is going to be able to compete with our five days of humanistic training? Give me a break, right? They understood way back then that this was the battlefront. And Christians, very naively, didn't recognize that. It wasn't until 1962 and 1963 when they made it official, right? As uh, Justice um, uh, Potter Stewart explained in his dissent, uh, what those rulings represented was not uh, the establishment of neutrality with respect to religion. What those were were the establishment of the religion of secularism, the very thing that the First Amendment was meant to prohibit, Congress establishing a national religion. Right? They didn't want some particular denomination of Protestants to take over the federal government in order that all Americans had to be that particular denomination of Protestants. 
And yet the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, after generations of dumbing down the American people, used the First Amendment to say you can't have prayer and you can't have Bible in school. Well, the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law. Okay, uh, my school board is not Congress. Uh, my state legislature is not Congress. And if the founding fathers, if the people who had written those words, if the people who ratified that language had understood that one day that would be used to remove the Bible and prayer from education, they would have burned this country to the ground before they would have allowed that. In fact, when that was ratified, most of the states had established churches. Okay, they, they, It's just simply ludicrous to believe that they wanted prayer or Bible out of the schools. Uh, and yet that was just really the, the formalization of something that had already happened. And so I tell Christian parents, look, it's not a neutral venue. There's no such thing. Okay, the schools are doing your job. They are discipling your children, but they're not discipling them in the faith of Jesus Christ, in the faith that was revealed to us through the word of God. They are discipling the children in a faith that stands in direct opposition to the true faith. And Christians have been asleep at the wheel for far too long. And we are now reaping what we have sown. We're losing our children. Go to any church in this country. They say, yep, all our young people are leaving. I can tell you why they're leaving. They're leaving because you as the pastor didn't warn the parents that the schools were indoctrinating the children, uh, not just to not believe in God, but actually to, to hate or even to mock or to ridicule God. And so what are the consequences? Well, First of all, we need to think of eternal consequences. That's the most important thing. And I tell parents, you know, homeschooling is not going to save your children. Christian education is not going to save your children. It's only Jesus Christ who saves your children. And yes, he saves people out of the government schools. He saved me. Okay. I was, I was the, the worst of all the heathens uh, and he saved me. So Christian education isn't what saves your children, but you can really play a, a, an important role in either discipling them the way God has instructed us to, or allowing the world, allowing Caesar to disciple your child uh, in really an antichrist religion. Uh, and, and that's the proper definition. I know people recoil in horror when they hear antichrist, but Jesus was clear. Uh, he said twice in the gospels, you're either with me or you're against me. And I can guarantee you, I can bet you every last dollar I've ever made that the public schools are not with Christ. You can go ask them yourself. You can't even mention Christ in the school system. So parents, um, you have an obligation as a Christian to remove those children from that school. Thank you guys for sticking around to the end and listening to our conversation with Alex Newman. Be sure to visit the website to check out any episodes you may have missed at fearlessfeatures.org. Music.